I'm going to direct your attention back to Isaiah 53, which we read to begin our service. One of the things that I regret, if there is something to regret about preaching this text this morning, is that there will be some of you who leave here and not fully understand it. Some of you who will sit under the preaching of the gospel again and not come to faith in Christ. Some of you who will have most of the most graphic language concerning the crucifixion of Christ given to you on the pages of Scripture and not be affected at all. Isaiah 53 is unique in this sense. Most often, the New Testament will shine light in reverse and open things of the Old Testament because they were concealed in types and shadows. This is altogether different. The beam of light from Isaiah 53 is pointing to the New Testament. It is pointing to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And it brings a, a reality to the pages on the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when we read of the sufferings of Christ that we wouldn't know had we not had these verses recorded for us here in Isaiah 53. This one chapter that details for us the sufferings of Jesus Christ, which in Isaiah's prophecy toward the end of his prophecy, there are these servant songs. This is one of them. This is Christ depicted in his servanthood of his father and of men as a suffering servant. The New Testament is full of allusion and even reference and quotation. You find it in Paul's writing in the book of Romans. You find it in Peter. You find it in the Gospels. You find Jesus himself alluding to things said here in Isaiah 53. But one of the places that unmistakably this passage of Scripture is used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus is with Philip's interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember in Acts chapter 8, the Spirit of God told Philip to leave an already great move of the Spirit and run along and, and find and come across this man, this Ethiopian man, who was in Acts chapter 8, verse 30. Let me just read a few verses. Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch replied, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. Then the place, the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Some other man. And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So Philip apparently took a portion of Isaiah 53 as his text to preach Christ to this Ethiopian eunuch. We stopped short of reading the effect upon this man. He believed, 
you wanted to be baptized, you can find those details in Acts chapter 8, verses 36 and following. Philip said, here's water, baptism performed. Countless thousands, perhaps millions of people, it has pleased the Lord to save them through an understanding of the things written here in Isaiah 53. You'll note that it begins with a question. The question is, who has believed our report? The second question, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We need to understand that the report being given here by Isaiah is the report of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you go back up into chapter 52 and just look at the last verse, it seems that Isaiah is making known that there are many Gentiles represented by the many nations in verse 15. He shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Isaiah is alluding there and prophesying of the incoming of the Gentiles into the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he immediately goes... Now, remember, Isaiah didn't write the chapter and verse distinction. He immediately goes and he asks the question. And you could almost begin to understand this rightly by the, inter, by the if you were to place the interjection, but, but who has believed our report? Who has believed the report that we are making? The Gentiles in time will be sprinkled as many nations. Their kings will shut their mouths. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. But I think here Isaiah obviously being a prophet to his own people, he is asking the question, who of us has believed this report? This report of a Messiah who is to come, And to redeem a people through suffering. We know that the Jews stumbled over Christ. He was a stumbling block to them. And I think the first few verses of this chapter tell us why. They stumbled over Jesus Christ because he came to them in a way that they did not expect. Or let me rephrase that, in a way that they didn't want. The scriptures told them plainly even prophesying hundreds of years before his birth, where he would be born, some of the conditions of his birth. But yet when he came, because there was nothing in him that drew them to him, they stumbled over him. They wanted a king like David, another king like David who looked like a king who had might and strength and power in the earthly sphere, in the earthly realm. They wanted their enemies to be subdued. They wanted the Goliaths to be driven out of the land again. They wanted a king to come behind and march behind him as they drove out every person in the land that was not supposed to be there. Remember, in the days of Jesus, they were under Roman oppression. 
They wanted to be rid of the oppression of Rome, and they wanted Christ to come, ride on a mighty horse, draw his sword, and drive the Romans out, and return them to their glory days of King David. But that's not what they got. They received a Savior, but he looked nothing like that. And so when you look at this first part of Isaiah 53... There is a call to believe the unbelievable. (laughs) I think that's represented by the second question, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so at the outset of this, let me say, if the arm of the Lord is not made bare in your life, the arm of the Lord representing His strength and His might, if the arm of the Lord is not made known to you, this is a report that you will not believe. The things of the Spirit make no sense to the natural man. You can't discern them. And so from the very beginning, let's pray and ask the Lord to bear His arm. I can't convince you of this report that we're going to read. I can't make application of these things to your heart and to your soul, but I have all confidence, I don't doubt for a moment, that if the Spirit of God If the Lord Jesus Christ set his affections on you this morning, you will leave this place glorying in this report. So let's pray towards that end. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we're thankful for this chapter in our Bible that teaches us about the suffering of your Son in our place. Father, we ask you to bear your arm. We know that you are mighty to save. Your arm has not been shortened. So, Father, we pray you would save the lost and that you would strengthen the saved, that you would edify those who are in Christ, and that you would prepare us to observe this ordinance that you have given to us as your church. We ask it in Christ's name, and we ask it for his sake. Amen. So let's read of the stumbling block to the Jew and the foolishness to the Gentile. The Jews stumbled over Christ because of His lowliness. The Gentiles, the pagans, stumbled over Christ because of His supposed foolishness. What type of king is this? Notice verse 2. For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant. I think the imagery here is Christ growing up before His Father after having been dispatched on this mission of redemption, after wrapping Himself in human flesh, coming in the most lowly of ways, He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground. Can't help but think of a verse like Galatians 4 and verse 4. When Paul would write, I paraphrase what he said, at just the right time, Christ was born. At just the right time. Who set the time? The Father in heaven set the time. And to those who were living in Christ's day, it is like he had sprung up from nothing. The people were cold, calloused, 
the Pharisees had perverted religion, the house of David from which Christ was an offspring had been perverted. Nothing about his birth was with any fanfare outside of those few shepherds who saw the angels and heard their song, outside of those few that would make their way that night to see the child Christ. We know very little, biblically speaking, of his upbringing outside that he was raised up in a carpenter's home. I read this week that that was the Lord's way, his father's way of concealing him for a time, placing him in the lowly home of a carpenter, hiding him, in a sense, as it were, from the religious fanfare and elite around him. But we see him again at around 12 years of age. Now his, his mind is so sharp and he is teaching the teachers. He is questioning the doctors of his day. He is astounding them. And all of this because he is one that is growing up before him as a tender plant, a root out of dry ground. But note, he has no form or comeliness when we see him. I don't think that this is so much a reference to Christ's physical appearance. The scriptures are, are really silent on what Christ actually looked like. I think this more has to do with the whole of his surroundings. His father, Joseph, his earthly father, Joseph, his trade, the town that he is from, the family that he is from, the home that they would have lived in, however lowly that would have been. When you see him, when they saw him, there is no beauty that we would desire him. And notice, in another place, a minor prophet calls Jesus the desire of nations. But yet his own people, writing here, Isaiah writing of his own people, when his own people saw the desire of nations, they had no desire for him at all. He was not what they wanted. But it was who the Father had given them in his wisdom. Notice in verse 3, a result of his having sprung up out of dry ground and a result of growing up as a tender plant, a result of no beauty and no desire, he is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isn't it interesting that one of the greatest prophecies of Christ coming to work out the redemption of men titles him as the man of sorrows. And that's not to say that there was no joy in Christ's life. Certainly he rejoiced when sinners came to him, when he healed the sick, and all of these things pointed to him. But the overarching scope of his life was one of sorrow and grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The word esteem there means to think highly. 
We did not think highly of him. What do you think of the man of sorrows? Do you esteem him? If you will be saved, you will be saved by this man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief and no one else. There is no other Savior. The rest of this chapter depicts for us the sorrow that he felt, the grief with which he was acquainted. And it's this that I fear that you will ignore, that won't arrest your attention. What we have here detailed for us is the suffering of Christ in your place. In the place of a sinner, Christ has interposed himself He has taken your spot. And notice the beginning of verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs. And just let your mind go immediately back to these first three verses. Surely He, who, the one who grew up as a tender plant, the one who sprung up as a root out of dry ground, the one that had no form or comeliness, the one who had no beauty, the one who was despised and rejected of men, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, he, that man, has borne your grief and carried our sorrows. If you're to be made right with God, something has to happen with the affront that you are before His holiness in your natural condition before God. And I'm not talking about your morality. You may be a highly moral person. You may do good things. Your life may be categorized as someone who goes about doing good. I'm not talking about your ethics or your morals. I'm talking about the standing of your soul as having fallen into sin before a holy God. If you will be saved, something must be done to that sin that is clinging to you that you cannot rid yourself of. The man of sorrows has dealt with it. Surely... Surely he has borne our griefs. Born means obviously to bear the griefs or the sin, the iniquity of this fourth verse has been placed upon the back of the man of sorrows and he has carried our sorrows. Can you make the connection? The man of sorrows is not carrying his own sorrow. He's carrying yours. He's carrying mine. He was God of very God. He was the the beloved of heaven, the crown jewel of His Father. But yet the only way that He could come to be known as a man of sorrows is because there were sorrows of others attached to Him. He brought no sorrow of His own into this life. But once here, Once sent here of his Father to accomplish our redemption, he bore our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Don't miss the word yet. This is 
the estimation of those who are beginning to see or to see have some semblance of understanding of who Christ is. Notice back up in verse 4 that there was no esteem for who He is in His person, the surroundings of His life, His parentage, His occupation as a carpenter's son, all of these things, there was no esteem. Yet in the estimation of these who have who have seen him as the stricken and smitten of God, their estimation is that he is suffering at the hands of God for something of his own doing. There was that much recognition that he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The reason is not given why that estimation was made, but when we get to the fifth verse, we know that it was an estimation altogether that had no standing. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Would you notice a few things out of verse 5? Our transgressions, our iniquities, and then our peace. Let's see how these are connected in the verse. He was wounded for our transgressions. Why did Christ endure the moments leading up to Calvary and then Calvary itself for our transgressions? Why was He bruised? The word here literally means crushed. Why was He crushed? For our iniquities. Why did he undergo the chastisement of his father? Well, it says here, for our peace. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. If you would understand the gospel, center on this phrase, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. There must be chastisement for sin. There must be wrath poured out for sin. And it was poured out upon Christ and it resulted in the peace of those that would be His people. And by His stripes, we are healed. Healed of what? One of the things that should disgust you as a Christian is the perversion of this verse. How many countless thousands will go to their graves Graves that they sought to avoid through the healing of their bodily diseases and sicknesses, having been taught to do so by a perversion of this verse. What a lie and a scheme of the devil. What a wile of Satan to take such a truth that concerns our substitution and atonement of Christ and to make it a mockery through the preaching of a false gospel. What we are healed of by the stripes of Christ are not our bodily infirmities. That doesn't mean that He is the great physician and He can heal who and when He wants and he, when He wishes. But there is such a, such a great more to this part of this verse. You were healed by the stripes of Christ 
from your sin-sick condition. Bodily sickness is an extension of your sin-sick condition. And what I mean by that is bodily sickness or illness is an extension of sin being in the world. Think of how limiting that perverse understanding of this verse is. Is all that we benefit by the stripes of Christ is that we will not suffer a physical sickness any longer? Is that, is that really it? Is that really all that we want? Think of how many people are being hoodwinked by this kind of teaching. Is this really all you want? And yet every single one of them and the mouths that are spewing forth this perverseness will find themselves in the grave. Something far greater is depicted here. By His stripes we are healed of our greatest disease. And our greatest disease is that we are an absolute affront to the holiness of God. And that is removed by the stripes which are representative of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. The things that He suffered in our place. We are healed of our sin by these. And then in verse 6, we're taught the truth of all we like sheep have gone astray. This is the universal need for Christ. Everyone of you need Christ. Whether you feel like you do or not, your greatest need is for Jesus Christ to remove your sin from you. This is why we began our began by praying that the arm of the Lord would be revealed to you. Some of you are sitting here so unconcerned about the state of your soul. I read this week a sermon by Samuel Davies, which was really edifying to me. I don't know if you know the name. Samuel Davies is Jonathan Edwards' predecessor, or excuse me, his successor. He came after Jonathan Edwards. Martin Lloyd-Jones so highly esteemed the sermons of Samuel Davies. He said he's the greatest preacher the American continent has ever known. But yet he's a a little-known name. I read a sermon of his on one verse of this text this week. And he brought out something that I had never really thought much on before. As he was urging people to come to Christ, he said, let me use something that exists in every heart that I can easily appeal to. And he says, that is your own sense of self-love and preservation. Everyone has this innate sense of loving self and wanting to do any and everything to preserve self. He says, let me see if I can sanctify this desire in your life. The best way that you could love self and preserve yourself is to come to Jesus Christ. For whatever reason that you are rejecting this report of Jesus Christ. The prayer again is that the Lord would reveal His arm in your life. And shake you from your complacency. I shared with those who were gathered here Wednesday evening for prayer. That last week I read in the obituaries of the Paris News. The obituaries of two extremely young people. 
The reality is pressed again on you, young person. It is a lie of the devil to think that you have time. You aren't guaranteed of any time. The day of salvation is here. The day of salvation is the day in which you live. So back to the sixth verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You know, the Proverbs tell us in a couple of different places that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. That's your own way. Your own way is not the way of Christ. Your own way is a way that ends in your own death. If you will not have Christ, if you will not come to faith in Jesus Christ, then just know this, that the way that you are on will end not only in your physical death, but your eternal separation from God himself, from the goodness of God. But understand, some think that what I just said was not exactly accurate. When you're into the eternal state as a non-believer, you're not separated from the presence of God. He is there actively in judgment upon you. What you have been separated from is his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. Now there is nothing but His continual and eternal fury upon you, which is so unnecessary because that fury came to rest in time upon Jesus Christ to ensure that you would never have to endure it. But for some reason, the obstinacy of some hearts, perhaps it's an intellectual thing, perhaps it's some other type of thing, perhaps it's just the base unconcern. These very things will lead you to a devil's hell if you do not come to faith in Jesus Christ. And what we're reading here this morning is all that he endured to ensure that you would have a standing before his his Father and yours. And notice the end of verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now the word all there obviously is qualified by verse 11. We're going to get to that in a moment. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of all of his people on him. How broad the shoulders of Christ must be to bear the iniquity of all of his people. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. How many opportunities do we read of in the Gospels where Christ had opportunity to defend himself. That was what astounded Pilate, right? You're not going to say anything? Don't you know how I have power over you? The one thing that Christ said was a correction of Pilate's misunderstanding of where true authority came from. But he said nothing to try to defend himself from the accusations that were being leveled against him. Please, believer, think about this. He owned your sin. If I was unjustly accused for something you had done, and it was apparent to everyone, most likely... I'm going to exhaust every resource that I can to clear myself from suffering consequences you deserve. And you'd probably do the same. The reason that Christ opened not his mouth 
was because he owned your sin. He took it to himself. He did not want to be out from under the consequence of your sin. He knew because he was indeed the Son of God. He knew that he was bearing the sin of his people. This is what he had come to do. This was the purpose, the reason. Why would he seek to get out from under the consequence of that sin? The consequence of your sin. He opened not his mouth. He, the illustration here is he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Even though the scriptures would tell us that he was wholly harmless and undefiled, completely separate from sinners, he identified with sinners in this sense that he would not open his mouth to even begin to cast off blame or to declare his own innocency. Some in history, I think this is something that Josephus wrote, if you've ever read his writings about first century Christianity and prior. He said some of the sacrifices, even if they were perfect and spotless and unblemished, if as they were being led to the sacrifice, acted up at all, if they misstepped, if they let out a bleat, whatever it was, then they were discarded and another one was brought in its place because they were deemed unworthy. Because they would not go to the slaughter in this way. Silent. But yet the great depiction of Christ is here. As He was being led to the slaughter, He opened not His mouth. He willingly identified and voluntarily, please note this, He voluntarily took your sin upon Himself. No one coerced Him. He was not overpowered by a greater authority because there is no greater authority. He was not coerced to take your sin. He willingly and voluntarily bore your sin, your grief. He carried your sorrows. In verse 8, He was taken from prison and judgment. Who will declare His generation? For He was cut off from the land of the living. The, the words here in Hebrew which come across to us in English as cut off depict the most violence, most violent of deaths. It doesn't really come across that way in English at all, does it? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And then we're brought to a climax, I think, in this, in this chapter. And it is signified by the word yet that begins the tenth verse. And if you run backwards... And you look at these things as positives. There was no deceit in the mouth of Christ. There was no violence that He had done. And you run backward all the way through. You get to verse 10. And yet, even all of this being true, 
Even though he was undeserving of what he was about to endure, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was absolutely sinlessly perfect, completely obedient to his Father's law. Nothing in him whatsoever, even even the hint of sin was not present with Christ, and yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Have you ever wondered why it pleased the Lord to crush his son in your place? can only be because he's full of mercy and compassion and love. But yet, there's another answer. It's because he is perfectly just. It pleased the Lord to crush Christ in your place so that his own vengeance could be satisfied. And notice, it had to be the the Lord, the Father, bruising and crushing Christ because man could not. Man Man was simply the instrument that God used to crucify his own son. And that's told us in the 10th verse, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, surely there's an allusion to what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, that verse that tells us that the father made the son, considered the son's sin, so that we might become the very righteousness of God. You'll notice in verses 10, 11, and 12, three times over, the soul of the suffering servant is mentioned. You will make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He poured out his soul unto death. Think with me for a moment about the soul of your Savior. It is gloriously true what Peter wrote that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ's body was broken, it was battered and torn, but what of his soul? We read in the Gospels that before Christ's body was ever touched, before the thorns were ever placed into his brow, before there was ever a scourging, before there was ever spit in his face, before anything happened to his body at all, his soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And he began to sweat great drops of blood because he was so vexed in his soul. So when you think of what Christ endured for you, don't just think of the few hours of the bodily crucifixion. Think the years prior, which started only, the Lord knows, in the mind and the heart of Jesus Christ, the suffering of His soul in your place. He knew Isaiah 53. He knew the prophecies concerning the Messiah He was. He knew that He would be bruised and crushed. And he still, even knowing this, set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to endure it all. 
We can equate, I suppose, to some degree of what his bodily suffering might have been, but we can never even begin to know what he endured in his soul for us. The full knowledge of what was going to happen to him as being forsaken of his father. We see that depicted in the gospel records when he, when he prays, Father, if there is any way that this cup can pass from me, let it pass. But yet, he closed that by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So back to the 10th verse, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you made his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And again, I mentioned Samuel Davies earlier. He commented on this phrase, he shall see his seed. And he said, one dying Christ has produced millions upon millions of believers. He has a seed. Are you the seed of Christ? The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a product of the labor of his soul. And he is satisfied. You know, it's been... 11 times over I have watched my wife travail in labor but then there is something that instantaneously happens when that child is born and John in his gospel writes of this in chapter 16 and verse 21 all of that labor is forgotten All of that travail is forgotten. That's the imagery here in verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. How well pleased is Christ in you when you come to faith in his name. The scriptures couldn't be more clear and explicit. All of the travail of body and soul he forgets when he sees the fruit of his labor. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And just as in Philippians chapter 2, you're familiar with most likely the descent of Christ, his being humbled and his exaltation, the same pattern is here. Verse 12 is the exaltation of this suffering servant, the one who has borne the sin of many and justified them in the Father's sight. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, reason being because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made transgression, and he made intercession. For the transgressors. 
This is what Christ has done for you. This is what is depicted in the supper that we are about to observe. As you approach the table of the Lord, I have one more sentence for you from Samuel Davies. He says, the remembrance of Christ has real virtue in it. The remembrance of Christ. The remembering of his enduring of these things both in body and soul for you. That he has removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. He has buried it in the depths of the sea. He has paid your ransom. The remembrance of Christ has real virtue in it. First, he says, to refresh your soul. Our souls in this life, because of the battle of the flesh and the spirit, we need times of refreshing. When you come and you meditate upon what Christ has done for you, your soul is refreshed. Secondly, he says, it heals your wounded conscience. How many believers sit here this morning with a conscience wounded before a holy God? because of battles lost with remaining sin this morning and the prior week. And you come, and in remembrance of Christ, you remember what Christ has done once and finally for your sin, with your sin, and your wounded conscience is healed. And third, he says, the virtue in the supper is to revive your languishing graces. our weariness, perhaps even our slothfulness in grace. There was no weariness nor slothfulness in Christ when He worked out our salvation and redemption. Let me pray and we'll observe communion together. Father, we're thankful for the broken body and the shed blood of your Son, our Savior. We're thankful, Lord, that He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, that it pleased You to bruise Him in our stead, in our place, that it pleased You to put Him to grief so that we would know nothing as believers in Him of the grief that He bore. We're thankful that he did not open his mouth in defense of himself, but that he fully took our sin up on himself and owned it as his own. We give you all the praise and glory for this report. Father, who has believed it? Only those to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. So Lord, we pray you would bless this time of communion, to the edification of believers, to the building up in the faith. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.